From O'Melveny and Myers, this is the Cram Down Podcast. All right, welcome to the Cram Down, O'Melveny's Restructuring Podcast. I am your host, Daniel Shama, a partner in O'Melveny's Restructuring Group. It is great to be back. Um, and today's a big day. This is this is a milestone moment for our podcast because, you know, the other podcasts that we've done, there were sort of like the warm-up act where, you know, we just, you know, we talked to Joe, we talked to Maria, you know, where we sort of talked to the other O'Melveny restructuring partners, get their perspective on things. But now, now we actually have a real guest, someone with uh, some real credibility. It's, it's Rima Agarwal from Franklin. Rima, how are you? I am very well. Thank you very much for that very generous and highly undeserved introduction, Daniel. Uh, glad to be here. Oh, we're, we're, we're thrilled to have you. And we're, we're just getting started on, on uh, complimenting you. So if you thought that was undeserved, then we're in for a, a long 30 minutes. Um, so, so Rima, for our listeners, uh, Rima is um, at Franklin Templeton. Rima, maybe, get, maybe tell the, the folks listening your role and where you sit within Franklin, because Franklin, is, as many of our listeners knows, is a, is a very large organization. So maybe give a little bit of a background on your role and, and what you're up to these days. Sure. Um, so I'm going to date myself a bit here. Uh, I've spent 24 years in credit, uh, have touched uh, a fair number of components of uh, credit lending um, across different asset classes, started my career with structured finance lending to infrastructure projects, uh, worked with ABN AMRO. Um, then I've done technology corporate banking with Fleet Bank um, until it was bought by Bank of America. I've been with Franklin Templeton since 2004. I started in a research capacity. Um, in my current role, um, I have been uh, here since 2019. I manage the bank loan business for the firm. Um, we play in the broadly syndicated bank loan market. So that's a fairly well-known market. It's almost as big as the high yield market, but that is uh, solely our focus here. Um, highly fundamental research oriented. Um, we think security selection is key to performance over the long term. So that's what we work on. That's what we specialize in. So what I, the reason why I, I, I'm, I'm glad you're here to have you on here, Rima, and why I really enjoy working with you, because full disclosure, uh, <laughs> we've worked together before and, and, and I count you as a good friend as well, um, is you're not a quote unquote distressed investor, right? Like you're not, as I understand it, out there looking for, you know, deeply discounted debt um, with a potential you know, event-driven strategy or, or an investment thesis around a distressed or restructuring uh, possibility, right? You're, 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 you're approaching your investments from a slightly different perspective. Right. Do, I, do I have that right? Or should I stick on my lane as a lawyer and, and leave the investing to the professionals? No, no, that is correct. We are par investors. So the syndicated bank loan market is generally par based. Most people come in um, at new issue or in the secondary market. Um, so that's the investable universe for us. I am not a distressed investor by choice. Um, that has happened <laughs> in my past, but um, yes, we are par investors. So you're not a you're not you're not a distressed investor by choice. It sounds like you're sometimes a you end up a distressed investor by uh, by happenstance. Um, maybe you know over the last couple of years, you know, through COVID, we've seen you know quite uh, quite a bit of volatility to say the least. Um, Maybe talk a little bit about some of the recent deals that you guys have been in that have gone through a restructuring cycle. You don't have to go through all of them because I know there's a few, 
Maybe just talk generally. And I think what people, what I'm interested in learning is sort of where you sat within the capital structure um, and sort of, and as the restructuring process underwent. Sure. So I don't think we are unique in this. Uh, we had our fair share of restructurings over the last 12 months, certainly. Um, five restructurings in the last 12 months. So that's been fun. Um, <laughs> so some of those were uh, highly exposed to energy. A couple of those that we handled last year were names where we were expecting uh, pay downs or refinancings. And then March 2020 happened. And they went from regular way credits generating a good amount of cash flow to distress situations literally overnight. So we've dealt with some of those. Uh, we had some gym exposure. We were involved in the 24-hour fitness um, bankruptcy. And uh, people may have heard of GNC. That's another one that we dealt with um, over the last year. Um, overwhelmingly, we sit at the top of the capital structure. I think part of that is due to the nature of our market. Second liens are a small part, so we don't really play in those. And my view always has been that uh, investing in a second lien is a probability of default call. If you go into restructuring, a second lien is more often than not wiped out. So we would play in second liens in credits where there is not even the slightest chance of a restructuring. So we do sit at the top of the capital structure. Um, one of the energy companies that we did take through restructuring, we had a second lien position, but we were so large in that second lien position, we had outsized negotiating leverage. So that's where we find on things. So I think one of the things that I think is interesting about your perspective is you know, you you have fairly substantial recent restructuring experience um, given, and I and I think you know you and I have worked together, gone back now you know, three or four years at this point. Um, but you're not, as you said earlier, you're not in the restructuring space. You know, as that's not your perspective on things. That's not what you're looking to do. Um, and so I think one of the couple of things I wanted to talk to you about. Um, are, and I'm interested in your perspectives on all of this, obviously, are what are some of the things you learned about restructuring? Um, and what are some of the things you wish you knew at the beginning, um, perhaps? Um, but maybe we'll focus a little bit less on that. Um, um, and going forward, what other investors should be thinking about? So maybe maybe let, starting with, um, you know, the beginning of the process, right, where you're looking at your portfolio and, and you see, you know, whether it's trading prices or just rumors in the market, whatever it is, that something is starting to tip into um, a restructuring, uh, potential restructuring or potential uh, action that needs to be taken with respect to a loan. What, what's going through your mind at that moment? How, how are you thinking about that particular credit um, and, and the steps you may need to take to um, uh, to deal with that situation? Um, I think a lot of this uh, decision, a lot of the lessons that we have learned go back to before these situations go into restructuring land. I think the most critical thing in our space is to have conviction. We need to do the work to have a good idea of what the recovery is of the investment that we are going into. Uh, fundamental analysis is critical. So when we are in regular way credits, clearly that's important. We want to avoid defaults. We are our investors. Our investors um, pay us to stay away from defaults. Once we start getting into restructuring land, or it seems like a name is going to go into restructuring, you want to do the work and figure out how convicted you are to go through that ride. Things will typically get worse before they get better. 
So if you don't have conviction, I would say you should get out or scale way down before the name goes into restructuring. I think that's, uh, that is the most critical thing that uh, uh, is, uh, makes or breaks the outcome of an investment for people. Uh, the second is I think we need to get organized early. And that's been certainly been the case in a lot of the uh, transactions we have been involved in. Establish contact with other lenders. See where their heads are at. What kind of transaction are they looking at? Um, talk to advisors early. Um, certainly you're familiar with that. We've talked to you several times in advance of things going into uh, potential restructurings. Uh, when you talk to advisors early, you can get a good sense of what the company's options are before the specter of restructuring comes up before um, different claimants come in, before the waters are muddied. So that way you can get in front of the company early on, offer them options as they are contemplating next steps. If you don't speak up early, you can get let up, left out of the deal that they strike. Um, and that is never good. Um, I so, think- So let me ask you this, yeah. Lima, um, because I think one of, the, one of the dynamics I think we sometimes see is like, is the self-fulfilling prophecy of it all, right? Where um, you know, you have a you have a company that you know you know is dealing with certain challenges, and you know, and obviously management's talking about how it's temporary, and they and it's this you know it's this exogenous factor or that exogenous factor, and they have you know this is their strategy to to deal with whatever it is, right? Um, and you, to your point about conviction matters, you know, presumably you're gonna you know evaluate the situation look at you know look at the quarterly results hear what management has to say and you're gonna come to a view on you know whether you buy it or not and and I think your point about conviction mattering is really important because if, if you know that's so much of what's going to follow is that decision at that exact moment right it's like this is sound this is this makes sense this was a, a one-time you know, weird thing that happened to them that's not, you know, it's not a, a, a fundamental issue with the company or anything like that. But that next step of getting to know other lenders and, and engaging advisors, I'll come back to that. <laughs> Don't worry. And sometimes I think that creates this um, momentum towards a deal where not necessarily, that's not necessarily the best outcome for the company. And now I'm sort of speaking against my interest as a, as a lender lawyer sometimes, because obviously, I'm always pushing for their momentum to, for, for the lawyers to give the lawyers something to do. But do you ever encounter that where, you know, folks are talking to each other and wanting to get organized and, you know, they're taking pitches from the financial advisors or the law firms and you sort of step back and you, and you ask yourself like, okay, like I get all this, but like, gee, are we getting a little bit ahead of ourselves here? And what happens when somebody leaks the debt wire that there was a call organized and, people are going to start trading and then it becomes like, whereas I, I think this company maybe just needs, you know, a quick amendment and, and a forbearance and this can all be sort of, you know, they'll, they'll come out of this. Now, all of a sudden, we're sort of driving to a, a completely different outcome. Do you ever get that? I get that sense sometimes from the advisory side that, you know, these things kind of build on themselves. I'm wondering whether you see that from the principal perspective. That's an interesting question. I can't say that... Um... We have been in situations where uh, people are, what you're essentially saying is blowing things out of proportion or exacerbating a situation that could be handled in a regular way. I think even if uh, there was a fairly benign solution, an amendment or an amend and extend or giving the company some additional runway, lenders still would have to talk to each other. And 
really lenders will not engage with each other if there was not a general view that this company needs help. So I would always err on the side of talking to lenders. Uh, clearly, when we talk to advisors, um, one of the things that we evaluate our advisors on is how much of what we talk to them is making its way to debt buyer. Um, I think confidentiality is critical and most advisors in the market live and die by confidentiality. So we have a lot of confidence with the people that we work with, but um, I would always err on the side of talking to lenders versus waiting it out. Waiting it out doesn't really uh, pan out for us, I think. Do you ever, um, and this is, and you don't have to answer this, <laughs> we can edit it out, but um, do you ever, um, you, you said that you sometimes evaluate your advisors based on whether you know, the things you tell them or the things they're hearing are end up in debt wire or your research or wherever. Um, do you ever have that sense from other lenders in the market? Like they're, oh, that institution, they're, they're, they're the ones, you know, they, they you know, you tell them something that's going to end up in the press the next day, or do you not have, uh, um, do you never really encounter that circumstance? Well, most people that we talk to and most people that our uh, co-investors talk to are fairly reputable firms. So I can't say that we deal with that uh, very often. Right. Um, most of these firms have been around for a long time. They have been in different seats over the course of, these people have been in different seats over the course of their careers. And so they know what is involved. So we don't, we don't typically see that. If something gets leaked into Debtwire, uh, our advisors will typically do the digging to try and figure out who is, yeah. who is leaking it. And it may be another lender. Who, whose cost basis is a lot lower and they want it to drop lower so that they can buy more. Um, and as I said, we are part investors, so we are not in that position. Um, so it could be another lender that does it, uh, which actually could go to your point about, do you really want to talk to other lenders? But um, again, I'd say it's better to talk than not. Yeah, I mean, that's sort of like, I, I think that's exactly uh, right in the sense that it's such a dynamic market and you know the way that feedback loop works where you know, you talk to somebody and it ends up, you know, in the market, which affects the trading prices, which in itself affects potentially what alternatives and, and strategies you want to pursue with respect to the company. That's the tricky part of it. And I think your point, that balancing act, right, which is sort of what you're describing, right, which is, you know, you got to know what's going on. You need to be in the loop um, because I think another uh, theme you touched on briefly, which we'll come back to is sort of you're, you're either in or you're out and, you know, being in the loop is oftentimes critical for protecting your position and driving value, um, you know, it could create, you know, the, the, the double-edged sword of that is stuff gets out, you know, it affects the company, it affects the, 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 the market prices, and all of a sudden, the situation just becomes that much more complex. Um, I'm going to talk my own book now, as they say, why is it so important to engage advisors so early? Um, not just because you enjoy talking to me, but... Um, you know, are there particular things, seriously, though, are there particular things you're looking for from advisors um, early in the process? Oh, absolutely. I do enjoy talking to you too, Daniel. So uh, that that's for sure. But, um, but I think there are some very critical things that uh, we can get a good handle on if we talk to advisors early. So when we engage with law firms early on, one of the things that we are looking at is what does our document allow us to do? What does our document allow the company to do? Where are the loopholes that they can do things that are adverse to our interests? Um, if there are intercreditor agreements in play, then, then the advisor, the legal advisor can tell us, 
what uh, wiggle room we have with the other claimants in the capital structure. I think the legal options are, are very important to figure out early on because that just goes to feasibility of coming up with what we go to the company with. So on the, on the uh, legal side, that's the biggest value add that we get by engaging with um, legal advisors early. Um, in terms of financial advisors, one of the things that I think is, uh, is good to have early on is before we go into restructuring, before different claimants come in, before there is complicating factors, financial advisors will look at what market comps are, what the valuation is, a good sense of valuation when things are still okay, uh, the company has not gone into restructuring, uh, that can give people a good sense of what run rate the business could be worth. So it just helps us in our due diligence. It helps us corroborate our thesis. Um, and um, that, I think, is the primary value of a financial advisor early on. Do the advisors, I, my, my, the other thing I would add, I think, is, and, and this varies on, on, on situation to situation, but I, I do think advisors often will help facilitate the, the point you made just before that one, which is talking to the other lenders. I mean, at least in my experience, sometimes, you know, the advisors can assist with that, right? Where you talk to one or two holders and, you know, you sort of hear through word of mouth or they, you know, they tell you who to talk to next and it kind of can allow folks in your position to figure out who's involved and who's saying what and you have you know, from the standpoint of confidentiality, you have that advisor sort of um, at least building a little bit of a framework for confidentiality. So you're not as, you know, at least legally speaking, there could be a little bit uh, additional protection there. Yeah, yeah, that's an excellent point. They often act as a bridge between lenders because they are looking at deals in the market. They are looking at potential restructuring. So they often will know five other lenders and we may know one or two. And so uh, they do serve that role. Yes, that's a good point. And do, and do they act as a bridge? And I think this is a, this is a little more delicate, right? Which is when do you um, have them engage the company, right? Because um, that often is a, uh, you know, you, you don't want to necessarily pull that trigger, you know, willy-nilly, right? You want to you do it in the right time, in the right way um, to ensure that, you know, the messages doesn't, the messaging doesn't get, confused or anything like that but you know and oftentimes you have and oftentimes in our, you know, when we work together you've already built a relationship with the company right? right so you already know the cfo or the or the ceo or or the other senior executives maybe even some board members so you've had those conversations with them already um so introducing an advisor to those conversations just changes their character right it just sort of changes the way um the company may perceive its own lenders yeah no uh, agreed I think in situations where we have a direct line into the company and we are large holders, um, we may not engage with financial advisors as early as in situations where we are one of many. Um, in that case, the advisor can serve a more useful role in, in coordinating uh, where different lenders sit, and then they can go to the company on our behalf in a more organized fashion. Um, part of the thing also is, do we own 50% or more of the voting block? If by ourselves we do that, then oftentimes we will have a direct line into the company. If we do not, then that's where a financial advisor come, comes in. And the outreach to the company is in stages. It could be as easy as 
we are here, we represent more than 50%, we are willing to work with you. Or it could be, we believe you've uh, been talking to these other claimants and these are, these are what we think your options are that we would be willing to support. So it can take on different flavors, but I think where the group is more uh, spread out, that's where a financial advisor plays a bigger role early on. So I want to pick up on something you just said, because I, I, I think it's, it's important. Uh, you, you talked about whether you yourselves have more than 50%. It may be obvious to some people, but it may not be. We, we, you know, we, we get a, a wide audience here. Why is that important? Why does size matter in these situations? Um, size is critical. I think uh, if you have size in a deal, you get to write almost your recoveries. I think... Uh, Typically, when you have uh, a large investment in a company, you are tied at the hip with them. Um, you are best placed to support them through the restructuring. Um, you have likely a checkbook that you can use to support them when they need cash. Um, oftentimes, companies will need cash during a restructuring. Um, lenders that can do that, that are already large in, a, in an investment and that have the ability to deploy capital to help the company, will often walk away with... Uh, much better recoveries than if they were smaller um, and they didn't really have a mic with the company. Um, I think the days when all pre-petition lenders used to walk away with equitable recoveries in reorganizations, those days are gone. I think a smaller group of large lenders, they are the ones that get to drive the bus these days. And we've seen them walk away with outsized recoveries just because they supported the business when it needed them in good times and most definitely in bad times. So yes, size is critical. Is that unique to restructuring? Or is that true in, in your non-distressed investments or you know other restructuring investments or it's unique to restructuring because by definition, right, this isn't going to be just a refinance or a, or a payoff, right? This is right. by definition, people are getting either equitized or they're getting less than than 100 cents on the dollar plus interest. And so that's why, that when, when it's that dynamic, that's when this, you know, size matters, you know, the, the larger lenders driving the bus and, you know, potentially, you know, taking outside share of recoveries really comes into play, I guess, is, is the sense that I get, at least. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Size is more critical when you go into restructurings. I think in regular way transactions, um, at least our strategy has been, we don't want to be too large in one name. We don't want to put too many eggs in one basket. So we have a fairly diversified portfolio. Um, I think size starts to matter when um, when you go into stress situations. So because you're not sort of exclusively looking at sort of these kinds of distressed opportunities, quite the opposite, what are some of the internal things um, you, you have to deal with? And, and, and the reason why I ask is because I think, at least from the advisory side, um, one of the things I learned over the last, uh, particularly over the last 12 months, given how many more CLOs have found themselves in, in restructuring situations is how often the internal mechanics of, of investment approval, of, you know, approval to, you know, uh, invest more, uh, take back equity, that how much of that, how, how, that, how significant a factor that became in a lot of these deals. So, you know, maybe talk a little bit about your experience sort of internally with, you know, to the extent that you can, obviously, you know, do you involve, you know, investment committees, you know, whoever you need to talk to and compliance people early and preparing them for the possibility that 
we, you know, Franklin may end up with equity or may have to, you know, write in a new, write in a new investment um, into a situation in order to preserve its position. Is that something you got to bring up early internally? And is that new? Do you get the sense that, I might get the sense that that's such a, that so many restructurings now, particularly in first liens, you know, first liens, that is where a lot of, you know, the, the value ends up becoming, right? It's, it's rights offering for preferred or it's, you know, it's, it's new dip, it's a dips of roll-ups, you know, that potentially convert, um, being such a significant part of value driving. Um, do you see that as well? And is that something that you deal with internally a lot? Yes, we do. Um, I think equitization of pre-petition holdings is something that everybody has to accept. And that's the new reality. Um, we certainly deal with that when we are going into restructurings. I would say that the first person that I'm accountable to is my investor. So we would look at what our prospectus allows us to do. Are we able to do rights offerings? Can we take equity in a debt? Can we take equity if it protects our pre-petition holdings? Can we um, give additional capital to uh, a stress situation, to a company that's in bankruptcy? So those are the things that we need to clear up beforehand, because there have been situations where we hear of other lenders that suddenly realize they cannot participate in rights offerings. And so they get left out when uh, when the equity, when fee or is being distributed in the form of equity, then they cannot hold it. And so they cannot participate in those additional financings or those dip financings or any kind of rescue uh, that they are doing. Um, so yes, that is certainly important. Um, we look at our uh, what our prospectus allows to the extent we have separately managed accounts. We do talk to our investors um, and tell them what our plan is. Um, and then we certainly involve compliance and legal um, to make sure we are thinking about it correctly and that, um, that we have all of our ducks in a row before we get started. Yeah, and I think the timing there is important because a lot of times these situations move fast, right? And, and we've encountered circumstances where you know, we had, we've had institutional clients that sort of face those structural issues, right? Whether it's, you know, uh, prospectuses or docs that, you know, prohibit, you know, taking back equity or, or writing in new money. And then, you know, all of a sudden it's, you know, here's, here's a draft RSA. Here's, you know, here's, here's the, here's the term sheet. We're signing tomorrow, you know, release your signature pages. And then you hear back somebody who's got you know, 14% of the loan, all of a sudden can't sign it because their compliance person for the first time realized that they're getting equity and there's like a thousand different boxes that have to check. Yeah. And yeah. so in addition to, I'm sure, managing your own internal clients and internal, you know, and external clients and internal, you know, uh, constituents, it actually ends up, you know, I, I think people, well, it, it, it could end up uh, affecting the deal itself. Although I think, you know, for a lot of the repeat players and, and professionals involved, I think it's become enough of a common issue that it seems most people get it now. Most people know to run those traps, you know, sufficiently ahead of time so that there isn't an issue. But we've encountered it where, you know, people don't realize, you know, until after the fact they're, you know, they're focusing on the business points of the deal and they, they suddenly realize, you know, maybe after the doc signed or before a trade settled or something that, you know, uh, something needs to be adjusted or they need to, figure something out internally and it can be a little bit of a scramble. Um, and that's okay from an advisor perspective. That's what we do, but, um, it can, it can create real hiccups, particularly in circumstances where, you know, you really need to move. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I know that a lot of CLO investors, 
were caught on the wrong foot on that uh, factor. Uh, the last time we had a spate of bankruptcies because they just could not participate in equities and and so they had to sit out and take much lower recoveries. So yes, absolutely agree. So the one other thing I wanted to talk to you about, we can we can you know you and I can go on for for a long time, but we 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 always we try to keep these things short and try to keep them to thirty minutes or so, and I think we're we're about twenty five minutes into this or so. Um, the other element, and you know. And again, I'm interested in your perspective as a as sort of a non-distressed investor is, is trading. We talked a little bit about trading earlier, um, just in how it affects market prices. But there comes a point in time in these processes where typically if you're um you know you know, and you're in your position, you're asked to sign an NDA um to get restricted. And and sometimes, depending on the business, it could be, you know. Uh, you know, sometimes it's a very short restriction period, right? It's just here's a business plan. You know, it's sort of a, a gut check, and you're restricted for a pretty short period of time. But sometimes it's, it can be pretty lengthy. Um, do you have any particular institutional preferences or biases about getting restricted? Um, you know, you're not a day trader, so it's a little. I, I, I take it you're not as like you know, it's not as existential for you to, to trade. But then again, you talked about this. You know, the first thing you talked about you know, conviction mattering. And if it's, you know, if you don't have conviction, get out before it's always going to get worse. So if you don't have conviction, you know, get out while you can. Um, the overlay of getting restricted um, and being under NDA on the ability to to get out before it gets worse. Um, how do you navigate that? How do you, how do you think about that? Um, are there particular things that really matter to you in terms of duration or uh, situation um, uh, or anything like that? Yes, so uh, that's an important point. I think getting restricted is part and parcel of every restructuring. Um, because we invest for a, a majority of our assets are with retail investors who pay us to invest in liquid loans. Once, once we get restricted, we cannot trade that paper until we have that material non-public information. Um, so we have a lot of energy around the time that we are restricted for. Typically, we will tell companies, uh, figure out things as much as you can and then bring us in under the tent so we can uh, do the substantive negotiations. Uh, we prefer not to be restricted for more than two weeks. There are also reporting requirements with the SEC um, because investments are classified uh, illiquid and they have to be reported um, and a plan of action has to be stated. Our board certainly has energy around um, what are called illiquid investments. Um, and these certainly qualify because we cannot trade them. So liquidity is important for us. And um, that's why we try not to be restricted. Uh, but it again goes to conviction, as you said. If we have conviction around a name, if we have a large holding in a name, and we know that by not being restricted, we will be left out of negotiations that have the potential to materially alter our recoveries, then we will get restricted. And we will go and explain it to whoever needs um, to understand why we are staying restricted for three months at a time or four months at a time. Um, so we will take it on a case-by-case -case basis. Got it. Well, that's 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 really helpful. Um, all right. Well, any any final thoughts, any last pearls of wisdom on sort of some of the lessons you've learned or some of the things that uh, you, uh, you've encountered over the course of the last few years since you've gotten a crash course in bankruptcy law and restructuring? Um, anything you want to share with people? people? Uh, well, there's one thing I would say is um, sometimes restructuring happens because of factors that are outside a company's control. 
But there are often times where it is decisions made by the management team that land a company into restructuring. I think when we get involved in a chapter 11, as we are looking to exit, we have a lot of energy around governance issues, around checks and balances, around oversight. So we do like to reconstitute boards when we exit uh, and populate them with industry veterans, people who are strong in audit, people who are strong in governance issues, because we think that management, to the extent the prior management continues, and even for new management, they need somebody to provide that oversight. I think governance matters are critical, especially in days of ESG, there is a lot more focus on it. But uh, from a recovery standpoint, um, I think that's one thing that almost every restructuring we have been involved in, uh, we have um, we have worked quite diligently to fix that. So that's, that's really interesting because I mean, there's been a lot of attention over the last you know year or so, really longer, but it's really gotten a lot of attention over the last year on pre-bankruptcy governance. Um, there was a there have been a couple of articles published about um, the uh, you know I'm quoting articles about quote unquote independent bankruptcy directors who tend to you know appear in many many contested complicated bankruptcies and you know raising questions about you know are they really independent you know they tend to work for a lot of the same uh players in in the bankruptcy space um that's a whole other podcast (laughs) but what you're describing is the post-bankruptcy uh governance right which is interesting because it's not you know it's not when the company's in the crucible of chapter 11 when you know they're in a fishbowl and every decision is is being second guessed but from the company's perspective right is you know, potentially could be just as important, right? Because now you have a company, maybe, you know, you now have a fresh balance sheet, um, you know, so you can, you know, hopefully you're, you're freshly capitalized and, and, you know, sort of here's, you know, a new beginning, so to speak, not to be, you know, too cliched about it. You know, governance and management is probably as important then as it ever is going to be, right? Because, you know, we know plenty of chapter 22s and, and even chapter 33s where a company comes out. And I know, you know, you and I are one of them right now. Um, right, where a company goes in a second time, mm-hmm. um, that period post bankruptcy, you know, having the right board members and having the right management team in place is absolutely critical, right? The whole the whole plan is premised, you know, oftentimes in these in these in these situations on executing a business plan, and if you don't have the right people that you have you have confidence in that you have that are the right people for that business for that industry, you know, the whole process that you just went through, which can be very, very expensive, you know, could fail on that alone. So I I think it's a really, really critical point. And I think it's one that's often overlooked when, you know, in the craziness of of a restructuring process. Yeah. And and I think pre-bankruptcy, because we are loan investors and we sit at the top of the capital structure, we don't really have as much ability to drive governance decisions because our money is supposed to be safe. I think after a bankruptcy is done, we end up being oftentimes equity investors. We are the residual interest. So that's where we have the opportunity to set things straight and, and hopefully get the company on a better footing from a governance perspective. Well, I think that's a great note to end on. Positive, upbeat, looking forward. <laughs> <laughs> um, so with that, I think uh, thank you, Rima, for your time. Always insightful. Always enjoy speaking with you. Thanks, everyone, for listening um, and looking forward to next time. Thank you very much, Daniel. Thank you for listening to O'Melveny's The Cram Down Podcast.
This podcast is a summary for general information and discussion only and may be considered an advertisement for certain purposes. It is not a full analysis of the matters presented, may not be relied upon as legal advice, and does not create an attorney-client relationship between the firm and the listener. Portions of this communication may contain attorney advertising. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. Views expressed by guests are their own. Please direct all inquiries regarding New York's rules of professional conduct to O'Melveny & Myers, LLP, Times Square Tower, 7 Times Square, New York, New York, 10036, telephone 212-326-2000.